right, guys, welcome back to the show. You all know the fucking deal. Today's guest, guys, the homeboy Kelsey. And uh, besides telling his story, he has two great businesses. One of the businesses is a partnership on the LFG 1904 show, Reconstruction Rescue Restoration. I'm sure you guys heard it already. Fantastic. I mean, listen, with all this rain going on right now, call that number. What's the number, Kelsey? I forgot. I, I should know it by heart, but I don't. Well, first, I got to do this. Let's okay. fucking go. Boom, baby. Phone number 760-891-9919 for all of your restoration needs, insurance specialists. Get with us if you have any homeowner's insurance claims, flood, fire, water damage. You know the South Bay right now. Or not South Bay. It was like South Crest. They got hammered. Shelltown is underwater. Yeah, I know. It's insane. Anyways, guys, you guys call that number. Uh, Kelsey also runs a runs and owns a sober living here in town. And wow, what a beautiful thing. 1904 sober living, correct? That's right. Yeah. That's right. What a catchy name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how's that going? The sober living was has been an experience. I'm super grateful and blessed to be in the position to help facilitate the recovery of all these these uh, men coming into recovery. Uh, some have experience with it in the past, and their their retreads coming back in, and um, you know it's 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 kind of a game of numbers. For every twenty guys, you get three that are real serious and want to change their lives, and it's just having the patience and grace um, as as the owner and the house manager to to deal with that. And, yeah, you know it's it's. Like I said, it's been an experience, ups and downs. It took about seven months to get the house full. Um, there's way more men's sober homes than, than I understood in, in just the East County area. And getting to work with the programs and uh, get referrals and really just get your name out there and get known for the type of program and structure you're offering at the house, that's, that's key. And so now we're at month eight, and we have 11 out of 12 beds full. I'm picking up a new guy today, this afternoon, so we'll be first time ever full house. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's it's exciting uh, to see everything work because I put a lot of hard work into the structure and into giving back what I was so freely given, and um, that's the payoff right there. You know, it's it's not. I'll be honest, it's not a money maker. Um, I know some people they make a lot of money at it. I don't know exactly how they do that, um, but. Yeah, with when you when you add up the rent and all the utilities and some of the toiletries and stuff that you have to buy, it's it's minimal, and um, and so it's not a money motivated thing for me. It's very much a philanthropic motivated thing for me, and a way for me to to really feed my own recovery and stay dialed in. All right, that's just fucking. It's still an amazing thing. So you're basically doing it service work, right? I mean, there is a lot of people that make a lot of money. I mean, they own probably a lot of houses. I mean, yeah. You know, that's that would be the key to owning a house, and that way that overhead, right, to you won't have to pay the rent, you own the house. Yeah. But still, uh, it's fantastic. I mean, congratulations, a full house. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, that just goes to show you, like, nothing comes easy and free, right? I nothing. mean, eight months, nothing. you know, yeah. of grinding. And I remember in the beginning, it was a grind for you. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. But, I mean, you got to have, I mean, you not to fill your house, but you had, like, a couple of uh, residents like right away right I did actually you know yeah. um, I had some what we call self-pay clients mm. that 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 found us um, early on um, end of our first month they moved in and uh, I still have two of the original guys nice from then that's and, really cool and I want to share this with you guys that 
those two guys came in and they were homeless. Um, they didn't have a driver's license, dealing with DUI classes, dealing with their programs, their groups, their meetings, their recovery, their, their sponsor. <clears throat> now where they're at is they're moving out. One guy got his own apartment, has his car, has his license, has a full-time job, has uh, eight months clean. Um, and the other guy has uh, about two and a half years clean. He's my psych guy. Um, and he was, it was impossible for him to live on his own mm. when I, when he came to my house and I'm not really taking all the credit for him, but I worked a lot with him to get him more self-sufficient mm -hmm. and now he's moving out as well and got a roommate situation. Mm, that's and fantastic. Yeah. That's the stuff that really makes yeah, it worth it. Absolutely. I was going to say that's the goal, right? Yep. Cause you have so many retreads, like you were just saying, mm -hmm. you know, to have somebody to stick and stay, then you don't want to you know, learn and, and take advice from somebody like yourself, that's pretty rad. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's that's the payoff right there. <laughs> For sure. Know? It makes me feel really good about what I'm doing. Um, and it's totally different. Yeah, I, I veer away from calling it service work because there is a money factor in there, you know, and I don't want to, I don't want to say that. But um, I think, I mean, for me personally, I get a lot out of it. Yeah. And I get it, you know, a little bit on the financial side, but way more on the spiritual side, on the recovery side. And for a guy like me, which I'll get into my story, but, you know, I stayed away from the fellowship and meetings for six years, you know, Wild. and um, and just white knuckled it and abstained from using. So I didn't have to reset my date, but I felt like a newcomer when I came back. And this was, you know, something that I felt compelled to do in order for me to do a reinvention of mm. my recovery. Yeah, that's awesome. Is your, what's your plan with that? Do you want to have more houses or yeah. just keep it small? Yeah, so no, I don't want to have more houses. Uh, my plan is uh, a two to three year plan. Okay. And then I'm going to be out. Um, when I first was setting everything up, I had these grandiose ideas, as most people do when they start a business, mm -hmm. um, about all these houses and all this money. And, and as I lived in it, and I experienced it, I realized, yeah, this this is something that I see myself doing for a couple years, um, living in the house and managing it um, and and being a part of that. And then uh, probably I'm probably going to I have some interested parties that would want to buy the house. Sure. So would want to buy the business. Yeah. Um, and we're not talking big money either. <laughs> right. But um people that I feel confident in, in handing off the brand and everything to who are going to keep the structure the way it is and run it the way I ran it. That's really important to me. So, um, I've been in talks with those people already and, um, you know, I've given them somewhat of a timeline, uh, for where I want to be, but I want to make sure that I've really put in my work and my effort and that, you know, when I leave, it's my choice and, and I got what I wanted out of it. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Kelsey. And, and if you find the right people that are going to do all those things, right? You know what I mean. It's just going to be successful. Then who knows? It's like you know, it's one of those things. You'll you'll kick back and watch. Maybe they'll have another house or two or whatever. Yeah. And still under the same sort of foundation that you built. Yeah, they they have houses already, uh -huh. and so they're they're well versed in in the landscape of you know recovery, sober livings, and everything. Mm. And it's important to me that they're not. You know, that they're if if I get somebody who's already been doing it for a very long time, like 10 years or something like some of the people we know, they're just going to make it their structure, you know, because that's what they know. Mm -hmm. But getting getting with some people that are kind of new last two, three years starting out, 
they're still somewhat malleable and they've paid attention and they've come over to my house. They've seen the structure, you know, they've started implementing some of that same structure at their houses. That's what I want. I want it because I believe that, hey, if we create a wheel that works, then we don't need to go and reinvent it. We don't need to mess with it. We just keep that because what's our goal, right? Our primary purpose, mm. you know, it's if we make it about money, then we lose sight of, you know, the human side of this right so the primary purpose always has to be the human being it always has to be the person coming in trying to get better all right so that seems like what you've done too yeah fantastic mm -hmm. yeah i think that uh i was just talking to my neighbor clea you know and i was saying man it would be great you know to have like lfg sober living you know yeah and then i was like but i don't know how you do it you know what i mean i really don't like it's mm -hmm. just a lot of work it is a lot of work. It's a lot of work, yeah. you know, and she's always dealing with some issues, which is normal, right? I mean, yeah. you, I mean, the the newcomer is the most important person, but man, I tell you what, sometimes it could be a real pain in the fucking ass because I know I was, you know, I wasn't easy when I first got clean either, you know. So, yeah. you know, teaching these values and like instill these things and and men, it's so hard to do, especially when we're men and we're we we ran our own program, you know, right. and so now we have rules, you know, and I mean. You know, especially when the people I, I would feel like that's never been incarcerated because that's not everybody's story. Right. right? So when you're incarcerated, you have to have there's some rules that you got to follow and there's some things that you have to do or even like a really hard program. Right. But so there's a lot of sober livings and I've been in them. The ones that are real lax, you know what I mean, to where I can like get away with some things. Mm -hmm. But it seems like uh, what it sounds like you do not have that in their structure. And that's fantastic because people in early recovery absolutely need structure. Yeah. Because most likely they've never had it before. Yeah, the word I teach every guy walking in the house is that we're big on accountability here. Mm. Love you know? it. Um, the other thing we're really big on is um, making sure that you do what you say you're going to do. So if you sign a contract for the house, you're agreeing to follow the rules and regulations of the house. And to look, for the rest of us that are living normal lives and support ourselves and pay our bills, it's easy because we already do this stuff. But for somebody that hasn't had to have those responsibilities in years, it's mm. it's it's shocking, you know, for them to just to to get with that. And you're right. I've had guys come in who are used to different types of sober livings where they can get away with stuff right. and they kick and fight and they don't want to be there. And I, I remind them this is a voluntary thing. You don't have to be here. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the door's there. It's not yeah. locked, pal. Yeah. yeah. So, you Isn't know. Isn't that funny, though? Like, I don't want to do my chore. Like, really? You yeah. don't want to make your bed? Yeah. Come on, dude. Well, and, and you know, every every person is a different case. Yeah. Um, and I do hear them out. I hear their story. Every single guy, I sit down, I talk to them, and I get to know them, and I hear their story, and I find out their upbringing. Oh, you done prison time. Oh, you came from the streets. So, you you know, you came from wherever you came from. And that helps me to not only relate to them, but identify with them and uh, know exactly how I can better help them. Right. Um, but ultimately, it also has to do with the house, you know, how the, how the whole house, and we have a family structure. So that helps out a lot. Our Sunday house meeting is a family house meeting, um, and it's a place where everyone can check in. And it's a place where everyone can voice anything they don't like, like someone's leaving water on the bathroom floor or whatever, mm -hmm. um, you know, different stuff like that. It's an open platform and it brings the guys together and that helps for new guys coming in because they just get absorbed right in. And then the ones that don't want to do that, they stick out like a sore thumb. Mm. And, and you need that, you know, because you're not going to be able to help everyone. 
you know, and, and I'm a firm believer in you got to want this for it to work. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It takes, it takes work, right? Yeah. You know, it's nothing, nothing ever. Listen, listen to me. Nothing ever comes easy. Right. And if you've had it easy, you've had it easy, but li real life is hard work. So you got to have some structure, you got to have some dedication, and you got to really just want to do things right for yourself. That was a big thing for me. It was like, you know, I can just keep running amok and doing all and like damaging a whole bunch of things. But at the same time, I was like, man, I'm just living my own life, you know, and like there wasn't really the only repercussions were me getting incarcerated or getting in trouble with probation. My family, I just stopped caring about what they thought, you know, which was yeah. a lot of work to do to make make that right. But man. I think it's fantastic. I think you should, uh, I think it's cool that you have an exit plan too. You're going to set something up and then maybe just start something else. Man, you're just such a fucking business savvy guy, dude. Yeah, I've done a lot. Yeah. You know, I mean, <clears throat> this kind of sums up me. So my, my, the first picture I have from my mom of my Halloween, like the first costume that she has a picture of me wearing, uh -huh. I was a businessman with a briefcase. Nice. And um, I'm talking like, four maybe five years old where'd you where did you get that from i have no idea really i have no clue you don't okay yeah, i i don't know i mean it's the last time i ever wore a business costume but <laughs> um i must have at a young age just had some inclination of like hey you know this is and and really i think all that stems from like my anarchist attitude of like of, you know f authority and i don't want to you know listen to no one i don't want to work for no one i want to do it all myself right. And, you know, I was a hard case. No one could teach me anything. I had to learn everything the hard way. And I know, you know, there's probably a lot of people out there that can relate to that. You Absolutely. Know? It, it doesn't make sense when I look back on it, like why I was so stubborn and, and hard-headed about that stuff. Uh, because I would have been so much further along in life if I had. But uh, that's just how my how I came up, you know. Mm. So That's interesting. Because for me, it would be like my, gra my grandfather. You said a briefcase, and it was like my grandfather always had a briefcase and he always dressed really nice and he was very business oriented, you know? So I was thinking maybe he was a family member. Maybe you just watched a movie and you're like, I want to be like that guy. He's yeah, cool. It's, it's hard to Gecko say or whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I want to be like him. He's a stud. Yeah. I mean, you know, as we, as we talk about that, as we talk about like these, what I'm, what I'm saying is this was in like 1984. Right. Right. And, um, you know, it was very different back then and and like who knows maybe i saw because my mom worked a professional job and mm -hmm. i would go to work with her so maybe it was the people i saw at her work that yeah. were wearing the tweed suits and the <laughs> briefcases and everything the 80s baby come on <laughs> yeah <laughs> god damn hopefully you guys can relate to that fucking 80s god damn it best fucking generation so let's just talk about it man so when did you when did you first get into recovery Actually, well, how about this? Let's talk about wh when did you start to know that you're different? Yeah, so my first memory of feeling like I was special. Yeah, perfect word. Yeah, uh, probably around like four or five years old, six years old. Um, just feeling like for some reason, you know, I, I was just, I, I was destined to be different and special and life was going to be really easy and i don't know why i had that that delusion going on um you know i grew up as a latchkey kid my mom worked long hours and a uh, single parent household no no brothers or sisters and um 
And so, so it was just you and her. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And um, yeah, I remember like when I was really young, she was there more. And when I hit junior high is really when she had to, she was putting in the hours. She'd leave at like seven in the morning. I'd get myself ready for school, catch the bus. At this time, I was living in Carmel Valley and going to school at Earl Warren Junior High School in Solana Beach. And, um, you know, there's a whole nother part of my childhood where I grew up in North Park until I was 13 years old. And a lot of trauma happened in that time period. Um, North Park wasn't gentrified like it is now. It didn't have the custom breweries and all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, North Park, Adams Avenue, in front of John Adams Elementary is a rec center. And that rec center was the stroll. Um, and drug dealers and prostitutes and pimps and, you know, gangbangers and everything. And it was uh, primarily Hispanic, Asian, and African-American. That's right. what it was. Yeah, it was. And um, I was a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, white kid that everyone in the neighborhood called Cornbread. Mm. And, um, and so there's a whole side of my childhood that had a bunch of messed up stuff happen, constantly getting in fights or getting beaten up is a better term for it. Right. Um, and, and so, but yeah, when my mom moved us out of that neighborhood, I think she got tired of like the shootings in the neighborhood and the drive-bys happening. And so we moved up to Carmel Valley, which was culture shock, right? Because it's all white people. And, and the way I'd grown up to that point was not around a lot of white people. And so when I went up there, um, I could, I could play basketball. And, um, and so I made friends with a, a kid, some of you guys may know named Luke Walton. Mm. And he went to my high school. Wow. And so um, him and I would play basketball a lot and um, hang out occasionally. And I got to know some of his friends, which for the most part, I didn't really like, actually. But, um, yeah, so I remember, like, being very brazen. Uh, I was a very small kid. I didn't weigh much at all. Um, and I would just had a mouth on me and was ready to swing <laughs> all yeah. the time. And... Um, you know, some some kids would respect it, some kids would test it, and um, and so that's kind of how how that went. My mom wasn't really there to to govern that or to manage that. Um, she tried her best, and I forever am thankful for the life she provided um, to us. But at the same time, there was a lot of free time, you know. And by the time, you know, fast forward, I'm in high school and. I think at one point, yeah, it was my beginning of my senior year, and I was brought in the office, and I had the most absences out of any kid at the school. And um, But my test scores were decent. Um, I didn't pay attention in class. I was a class clown for sure, always seeking attention. But, um, yeah, that, that pretty much all changed. The minute I turned 18, dropped out of high school, moved out of my mom's house, and was off and running. Wow, so you dropped out, huh? Yeah, I dropped out two months before graduation. Wow. Yeah, I, 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 when I say anarchist mindset, guys, I mean seriously. Like, yeah. I, authority figures, everything I was so against and so just despised and wanted nothing to do with them. Yeah. I didn't want to be someone who followed the rules. Were you 18 at the time? Yeah, I turned so you 18. Ca- so that's what I, your mom was like, okay, we well, are 18, I guess, right? Well, she did fight it, but I'm I sure left. Yeah. <laughs> you said, fuck it. I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, she disagreed with every move I made the minute I turned 18 because I turned 18 in November, dropped okay. out of high school in January. And um, yeah, you had six more months to graduate. <laughs> yeah, dude. Your senior was, year. <laughs> yeah. So so I was I was done um, and I ended up meeting this girl 
there used to be this 16 and up nightclub in Escondido called the Ice House. And I remember so, that place. So I used to go there with my buddy, and I met this girl there, and um, her name was Janine. <clears throat> and Janine, her dad had, had a lot of money, but he was a bus driver. He was a city bus driver. But he had this huge house in Escondido, and so mm. I moved in, you know. And um, unbeknownst to me, his then-girlfriend was um, a woman who had been in and out of prison most of her life uh, for dealing methamphetamine. And so her sons came into the picture, and they had just got out of prison, and um, they introduced me to methamphetamine. Uh, before that, I had only drank and smoked weed like twice. Jesus Christ, dude! <laughs> That's like so, it's like when people when we'll, we'll be talking and we're like, "Yeah, I had like a sip of alcohol." Yeah. Start shooting dope. <laughs> like yeah. what the fuck? What you didn't even smoke weed? Yeah. Like. Yeah, so that's that's nuts to think about, really. I mean, your gateway drug was fucking meth. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I remember to this day, it's so vivid in my memory, right. being woken up in the morning. It was like a weekday morning. Yeah. And having a line of crystal meth put in front of me and told to snort it. And You're told to? Yeah, they are like, hey, snort this. Okay. And I was like, okay. So I snorted it, right? Yeah. And, and when I snorted it, um, it burned real bad but i loved the effect oh it's the best it was it was like eight and a half years clean guys and my mouth is salivating right now <laughs> i'm sorry say it one more time slowly it burned <laughs> yeah I god mean, damn and 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 so yeah i mean it was off to the races uh from mm. that point forward and and the end of that story is that the house um a couple months later got raided once again, I'm asleep, and I wake up, and there's guys dressed in all black with uh, rifles pointed at me. Mm. And, um, you know, I'm taken outside, and, and they weren't even cuffs. They're like these zip-tie things. Sure. And sat on the curb and everything, and they had a search warrant for the house and the whole nine. And that was my first interaction with police ever. And um, they were such jerks. <laughs> That's a nice way of putting it. Yeah. Um, they were very rough with me. And uh, I, I weighed about 115 pounds. So uh, you, the wind would have blown me over. Yeah. You know? And, um, and then uh, one of the guys I'd met who was a hangout at that house, he was like, oh, just come over to Oceanside and, you know, you can, you can roll with me. And I live out of motels with different prostitutes and stuff. And so that went my homeless journey uh, starting from there. It lasted about two years. You're 18, right? 18 about to be 19 um there was in the in the first year i was homeless i got arrested 11 times oh wow um and then my second year i got slicker and <laughs> not getting arrested so much yeah it went um, down to six <laughs> yeah it went it went down a little bit um i don't remember the number but i do yeah. remember that the last time i got arrested um ever that uh the judge was trying to slap me with a career criminal charge and uh, my mother came to the rescue. She worked in the legal field, and she happened to find out about a lady named Bonnie Dumanis. And Bonnie Dumanis uh, knew of a new uh, drug diversion program that was brand new by mental health systems called Drug Court. Um, that would have been 2001. And so I, I ended up getting a drug diversion and put in drug court um, in Vista. And um, I was, I want to say like, 19 or 20 no I would have been 20 years old at that point um 
So it was 2000 when I went in, and I graduated in 2002. So you can do the math. It's an 18-month program. I got reset twice. Um, you know, and it was so silly because I was staying sober and clean, but, you know, I'd, I'd do nitrous oxide on the weekends with the friends and uh, different stuff. And, yeah. And I didn't know that, like, that stuff would test positive, <laughs> honestly, you know. But, uh, yeah, they would bust me on Wednesdays at court. Surprise, you're going back to jail for a weekend. Right. And so... Yeah, I completed drug court, and um, and I stayed. I was in Alcoholics Anonymous at the time, and I stayed in that. And in, in that time, I stayed sober for like I want to say nine months, and then I relapsed. Mm-hmm. Um, and at then, the age of twenty, that's yeah, not too bad. Not too know? bad. Yeah, um, at twenty, had that relapse, and then stayed out until I was twenty six. Right. Um, got off the meth and transferred over to cocaine. Sure. You know, it's lighter. My favorite white girl. Yeah, exactly. Cocaine uh, took me on a different path. I wasn't doing the criminal activity I was doing on meth, and yeah. I wasn't stealing from my mother and doing all those things. Um, cocaine took me to where I was actually functional to a point. I could have a job, and I mean, I got uh, recruited by companies in Texas and in Florida, uh, sales companies, um, at a young age. So I'd move out there, and you know, I'd I'd drink a lot. I'd find out where to get dope. Yeah. And, you know, I was making enough money to support my habit. What a weird transition. A few things I'm going to go back over. But going from meth to coke, like, to yeah. me, it's like I would never now because it's like I already experienced it, right? Like somebody, for instance, they would be like, hey, we're going to fucking shoot coke into the heroin. And I'm like, why? <laughs> like fucking, you know what I mean? Like I've done meth, you know, so that's yeah. crazy. Yeah. But two, a lot of people say, you know, in the rooms, you know, oh, I, you you start it so late or, you know, I'm, people have said that about me, but it's like, it doesn't matter like when you start, it's what you do and your fucking transition to get to your bottom like that fast. Right. And for you <clears throat> not picking up anything hard until 18 yep. and then immediately doing meth. And then like all of these things are happening in such a short amount of time. Like that's wild. Like majority of the time people like start using and maybe it's like a, a rougher drug at 15 or 17. Right. And they, don't there's no consequences so right. then therefore they just keep going there's consequences probably with their parents or they're sending them to the fucking wilderness program you know what i mean where they're shitting in a fucking hole right but there's no you you went through consequences like immediately yeah so there's no yeah. in between like you were a fucking dope fiend from the moment that shit went to your nostrils until 20 and i'm sure then some yeah well, I think it's interesting because we talk about the drug and alcohol use, right? Yeah. But if you ask me, you know, when did I start exhibiting addict or alcoholic behaviors? It was at like seven or eight. Yeah. For sure. Um, I, I became a pathological liar at a very young age. Right. Um, manipulator, master manipulator by the time I was 11 for sure. Mm. Um, and manipulated the school system, my mother, everything. Yeah. Um, thief. Oh my God, I was stealing it like five years old. Yeah. You know, and then. And then lying about it. And then, yeah, totally. And then my social skills were, were abnormal. Look, I mean, I wanted to be hanging out with the cool kids and I wanted the attention they were getting. I just didn't know how to do that, didn't know how to be that. And so I found that, well, negative attention is still attention. Mm. And, um, you know, that was illuminated for me by a, a child therapist, you know, and it's, it is part of my life story. But I, I went through a situation where, yes, I was raised by my mother, but at seven years old, I met my dad for the first time. And the way I met him was crazy. 
my mother had shown me pictures, okay? We're living in North Park, and on El Cajon Boulevard, there used to be a blockbuster video. And her and I had a routine where every Friday we'd go and rent a movie. And this one Friday, we're driving, and I see my dad walking on the sidewalk, and I tell my mom, that's my dad. And she looks at me like I'm nuts. Like, what are you talking about? She parks, and I run over to this strange man. My mom's chasing after me. Oh, my God. And she looks up, and she goes, holy shit, that is your dad. Wow. Yeah, and so that's where I officially met him. And uh, after that, we ended up, we did like, um, we did a pizza date. So my mom, me, and him had pizza, and my mom was feeling him out and seeing if he, you know, where he was at, if he wanted to be involved in my life and what. And so I guess he passed that test, and so he got me for Christmas that year. And woo, was it a Christmas? Really? Oh, yeah. So, j- real quick though, so he was walking the streets. I mean, was he homeless or no? He was just walking. No, he had his tool belt on. He okay. He was just maybe coming from work. What was their relationship, like your mom and him? So, my dad was an alcoholic. Okay. Uh, my dad was a type of alcoholic who would go down. So, they, they lived in PB mm-hmm. when they were together. Um, so, let's see. They stopped working at the carnival, they got a job owning a carpet company um, out of Tijuana. And then. Um, when they were living in PB, they had me, and my dad was the type of alcoholic who would, he'd go to the bar and he'd get drunk, and he'd like play pool or darts or something like that, Sure. and he would lose, and he would talk so much shit because his ego and pride was involved, he'd throw all the rent money in the air and walk out. Oh, wow. And so, or he'd get beat up and his teeth knocked out or different things like that would happen, and um, my mom got tired of it. She got okay. tired of him not, you know, having the money for bills and coming home beat up. And and you're, it was probably, you, you, you were really young, right? So I was, like, not even one year old when <laughs> yeah. she got she rid of She said, him. fuck this. Yeah. I could, the writing's on the wall full. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> wow. So she got rid of him. And um, and so, yeah, I ended up uh, running into him uh, when I was seven. What was and, his reaction? Um, I don't remember. Okay. Yeah. Look, some of this, because the trauma was so great that Christmas, some of it gets oh, spotty, right. you know, and I choose not to fill in the blanks. You know, it's just, it is what it is. I, I don't remember his reaction. Um, you know, I sometimes have a hard time picturing his face. Mm. Um, but, you know, it's like this, raw and uncut. I wasn't touched, but I was visually abused. Right. The stuff he did in front of me, um, was so traumatic for a seven-year-old to see, mm-hmm. all right? Um, one example, and this is the only portion of the story I'll share, is I woke up Christmas Eve, and he was having sex with a prostitute that looked like she had a wig on next to me. And a, okay. Like, I don't know if it was a man or woman. Ah. You know, like, my memory can't tell me what it was, right. but it was something real weird. Right. And, um, and so... After um, that happened, there was some other stuff that followed, and I ended up calling 911 and hanging up. Uh. And so the cops showed up at the same time my mom was coming to pick me up. And so the cops were asking, and I didn't want to say anything in front of him because I'm seven and I'm scared. Yeah. And so I Mind you, this is the first Christmas with him, correct? First Christmas. Jesus, fuck. Yeah. And and so I, I go home. And my mom will not let it die. She's like, that's not like you. Why would you call the police? What's going on? And I think it took me a couple days. And eventually I sat down and I kind of started to open up about what had happened. Mm. 
my mother is not the type of woman you want to cross. Okay, she will kill people. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a good mom. A great mom. Yeah. Um, you know, and so obviously it sent her into a rage. Yeah. All right. Um, immediately calling him. I think she tried to track him down. Um, it was it was pretty bad. And and so what ended up happening is she did call the police and file a report. And so I had to go in and talk to these people and I had to describe the different toys he would use on himself and the different things. And uh, my mom was smart. She said, I'm putting you in a therapist right away. Yeah. And so seven years of um, of uh, child family therapy right away from seven to 14. Um and I'll still remember that. That therapist's name is Charlie Nelson. He's still a, a family therapist in La Jolla. Shout out yeah. because he he definitely set me off on a better course. I know once drugs and alcohol and everything came into play, I mean, I am who I am. But he did he helped me through that trauma significantly. How 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 long was the trauma lasting for? Well, I I would I would say that at times my behaviors. Well, what I mean though, is like, how long were you in that situation with your dad to where you were four, seeing all those four days? Yeah. That's enough. Yeah. Seven years old. Yeah. It's fucked up, man. Seven years old when my parents got divorced. And it's so funny that you're saying there was like glimpses and pieces and all that. Right. Mm -hmm. But I was like, walking it. Well, there was always like previous fights and my mom would take us out or whatever. But I just remember walking in where they're sitting on the couch and he's like getting ready to pack his bags and then like they're getting divorced and she's crying and this but it's like just a a wave of emotions but a very piece piece by piece things you know i still will never forget him to this day like and it's so bizarre right because like i can't think what i did last week at a certain time but goddamn, some of those things are so ingrained in me mm-hmm. towards like you just you can't forget so i would imagine those four days there's a lot of fucked up memories that you're what you're remembering you can't get them out some it's brutal some that's yeah. fucking brutal some i don't i mean yeah there's there's three that i remember yeah it's brutal you know four because i remember him i do remember my, my mother telling him you're off the booze right and he said yeah and i remember that first night that he was grabbing a fifth out of the cabinet yeah that first night so that at seven years old i already had some street smarts because of where i grew up and I think that's the only reason why his attempts to to touch me or or do anything sexually to me personally didn't work, you know, because I rejected them. Yeah. You know, um, I was just I was a smart kid. Yeah. You know, I, I just I wasn't naive to that. But uh, it was scary because you're dealing with an adult and you don't know how to get yourself out of the situation, you know, to like to say no. Right. And. I guess I'm lucky he didn't force himself on me or anything like that. Sure. Um, but yeah. So, and, and, you know, when I look back, I've done so much processing on that to get through it, but I think that it forever changed me in a way where it, it didn't cause me to be difficult for commitment in a relationship or anything, but it changed my view of sex. It changed my view of a lot of that stuff. And it took, I mean, I'm 44. It's taken the better part of 20 years to adjust that now, you know, to where I'm not, you know, being a weirdo, <laughs> basically. <Right. laughs> yeah. So no, some like it, so it's okay. <laughs> some do like it. Some do. That's true. You know, some do like it. And 
Uh, I've always, it's, it's interesting. I think the, the only piece of trauma that still messes with me is, and this is going to sound weird. Um, hopefully you guys don't take it the wrong way, but I get a thought in my head sometimes like, fuck, I hope I don't end up like him, mm. you know? And, um, it's, it's not that, trust me, I'm not attracted to kids. I'm not looking at kids, but it's, it's a weird lingering fucking thing. And so I'm always really distant. Uh, towards other people's children. I have a daughter myself who's about to be 18, yeah. right? We've had a pretty good relationship her whole life. But I'm I'm always like, for some reason, and it has to do with that trauma, 100%. Right. Because I've never had a thought about a child or anything like that. But because that happened to me as a kid, and because I've read that, you know, this is something that that disease that those people have or whatever that makes You're just in like total that. fucking fear. Yeah. yeah total you're total fear. fucking fear. Yeah. I mean, it's a fucking healthy fear, too. Let's be honest. I mean, yeah. I mean, not really, I guess, a healthy fear, but, you know, something that you're just, you're fearful of because you don't, I mean, it's not going to happen, but you don't want it to, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, only recently have I really started allowing myself to show my true self, you know, and there's a couple kids running around the program, you know, that I love. I love. I mean, Axton, I love that kid so yeah. much, you know, and, um, th- and then everyone's having babies, you know? Yeah. And so... I, I feel comfortable now, you know, but for a long time, I would just keep that on at arm's length, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and I'm sure some of my friends who have kids are wondering like, what's his deal? He doesn't like our kid, yeah, you know? And, and that's the reason, you know, is that I just was like scared, yeah, you know, but, um, yeah. So anyways, after that, you know, those, that's where I was, man. I was always exhibiting those behaviors, man. And, um, it was inevitable, I think, you know, for drugs and alcohol to come in the picture. Yeah, you play, just, just play a huge part. Yeah, just waiting. Yeah. Your disease was just like, fuck doing push-ups. That motherfucker's benching 5,000 pounds. Right. It's like, come on, yeah. baby, I'm ready. Yeah. yeah. And, and the thing is, like, I, I, so let's talk about the cocaine thing for a minute. Sure. Um, this is not a brag, but I could never get enough. I, I mean, I had to use everything I had when I had it. Right. And so it wasn't like, you know, some people can get an eight ball or something and space that over two days. Yeah. No, it was gone in an hour. Yeah. You know, I mean, I was, I was definitely that guy. And where that led me is to, um, having a heart attack and dying. And, um, it was really, it was really unfortunate because I was in the middle of being with my then girlfriend and I had a heart attack underneath her. Wow. And so it tra- what the fuck did that feel like? Uh, well, it's funny enough. Last year, she reached out to me on Facebook. First time we've talked since that event. Wow. And she was like, hey, you know, I found you. I'm just checking on you. Looks like you're doing good in life. And so we had a chat and I was able to make an amends to her. Yeah. You know, and um, what did the heart attack feel like? Um, so. And the only reason why I'm asking is I've had two people on the show and they explained it because I'm just fascinated by yeah, it. So yeah. what did it feel like? One guy said he felt like he had a backache and his mm. wife was walking on his back. And meanwhile, he's having a fucking heart attack. Yeah. Well, for me, um, what I remember is everything in my chest got super tight um, and that I couldn't feel my left leg and I couldn't feel my right arm. And then I was out. You just knocked out. Yeah, out. And then when I woke up, I was in the hospital. So she called 911. Yeah. Saved your life. No, she drove me to the fire department. Oh, shit. Yeah, she drove me to the fire department. So I must have been somewhat coherent and not remember getting sure. in the car. Yeah. 
she drove me to the fire department, which was like right down the street from where we were at. And they put me in an ambulance and took me to the hospital. Wow. Still. And then I was out. And when I came to again, my mom was there crying and very upset with me. Um, and just another time that I let her down, you know, you're doing a lot of cocaine, man. A lot, <laughs> a lot. Yeah. So it, the, so the reality of it is you really, you really can't do a lot because <laughs> you have a fucking heart attack. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, mm. it was, yeah. I mean, I, I just remember doing something in the neighborhood of like four or five, eight balls in an eight hour period. Oh yeah. That's not, that's nothing. <laughs> yeah. Right, dude. <laughs> that's insane. It's like a goddamn kilo. Yeah, it was. It Jesus was, Christ. Yeah, and it was never enough. It Fucking never Pablo enough. Escobar over here. It was never enough, man. You know, that's the reality of my disease. It's never going to be enough. Yeah. In the 90s, too, right? Yep. So, I mean, I don't know. I haven't, haven't done coke in... I mean, I have. But, I mean, the 90s coke was fucking fantastic. Yeah, coke was... Um, Coke was, was awesome. Best little, Coke I different. ever had, though, was in Miami, by far. Oh, I bet. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> your neighbors are pretty fucking solid individuals, you know what I mean? They'll yeah. fucking get over here in submarines. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I had the, I had the, um, I think it was called the Peruvian White Yeah. when I was over there. Um, and then I got this, uh, I met this Cuban guy, and he had some of the best blow I've ever had in my life. It just blew my face off. Right. And um, I'm not trying to glamorize it at all, um, but if I could do cocaine and be a normal person, I would. Yeah. Straight up. Yeah. I mean, it was so fun. They mixed it. I mean, I think, I, I mean, I don't know. In the 80s, it seemed like people were doing it, managing it, but I think people just stomp on it so much to where you really can't. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I, I agree, though. I mean... I've had some pretty good cocaine, too, to where it was like, oh, my God. You know, <laughs> then I've had some shit to where it's like, fuck, what the fuck is this? You know what I mean? Like, I'm just constantly doing more and more. Yeah. The trick of it is you only do a little bit, and you're fucking numb, and you're going, you know? But, I dude, I remember one time I'm doing coke for, like, maybe the third time, and yeah. I'm fucking saw-jawing so fucking hard. <laughs> my buddy comes up to me. He's, like, putting his hand right here on my, right underneath my chin. Yeah. And I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm catching all your shavings from your teeth. <laughs> Just fucking, you know, that video of that crazy guy? Like, you know, I'm like, I've been that guy, dude. Like, yeah, it's literally, I've been that guy fucking just twacked. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wouldn't feel right if I didn't tell this story, though. I want to rewind real quick. Yeah, to when I was So on on. Um, Excuse me. Yeah. Before before drug court. Sure. Um. You know, I went from Oceanside. Uh, my mom had let me move back in on her couch. And um, and so, no, I'm sorry. She gave me my room back. And uh, there was a high school friend of mine, you know. Um, and I won't use his name, but there was a high school friend of mine who um, I had seen at this plaza across the street from where my mom lived. And uh, he he had some dope. And so we ended up smoking. It was my first time ever smoking meth. I only snorted it. Yeah. And smoking, I was like, oh, my God, this is awesome. And that was my new love, right? And so I ended up hanging out with him. And uh, he was into a different scene than I was at the time. You know, he was a skinhead, and he was just into a whole different scene. And he lived on a place that was uh, nicknamed the Tweaker Ranch. And when I, when I tell you about a tweaker paradise... 
it, this is it. Yeah, I, I've seen them before. It's gnarly. I mean, it, we're talking about the 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 fifth wheels everywhere. Yeah. Uh, the garages. The, yeah. You know, and big big land. Um, you know, and so I ended up hanging out there for like a, a solid year and just just lost in the sauce. Oh, it was insane. You know, um, I stole a lot of vehicles during that time. I robbed a lot of houses during that time. Um, you know, and and I'm 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 pretty sure like everything felt like it all happened in one day. Mm. Like there was so little sleep happening. It just I mean, you know, you see the shadows, the people in the trees, you see all that. Like it was a daily thing for me to like be talking to myself or see things or it just there that's how it was. We do so many drugs and that's is this is really astonishing to me that we can do this many drugs and we're not those people that are on the corner talking to themselves yelling on the side of the street and i'm like grateful because there were times where you're just describing if i felt if i hadn't have crashed out it was was always like that point where i was like man i fucking need to get some sleep you know yeah but i felt like if you just keep going you're just you're just it's gonna it's gonna snap and you're gonna be one of those guys that are just on the corner fucking yelling at the fucking cars. Yeah. Yeah. Fucking so grateful. It's, it's a trip too because there's a there's two other guys in the rooms right now that that used to go to that same tweaker ranch. Yeah. You know, and um and so it's strange how I feel some type of camaraderie like hey, we went to the same fraternity. Yeah. Um, you know, and um I think the difference is I did a lot of county time. You know, I never did state time or federal time. And, um, and I, from what I've heard, it's a lot easier to do the state and federal time, but I did the equivalent of like two and a half years between Vista, Vista detention facility and George Bailey and, um, a couple trips to downtown, but not many. And, and so it's, it's interesting to see the difference, you know, and I think that that's the road I was on. Had I kept going, I would have ended up there. Yeah. Um, and then I, I'd know a lot more people in the rooms. Sure. <laughs> exactly. So, um, but yeah, it it just is crazy, and um, and and that made me a different human being. I mean, I have the most regrets about those times in my life because the person I became, mm. the things I did, you know, um, you know, allegedly I held up a Seven Eleven. Allegedly, yeah. you know, I stole the district attorney's car. Allegedly, I did. I, you know, and it was like, this is, uh, it's not me. It's yeah. Not in my heart, you know, but yeah. that's where the drugs took me. Yeah. We do a lot of fucked up things, allegedly. Yeah. It's just really, it's fucked up. And I mean, <clears throat> it doesn't matter, uh, you know, this, uh, this disease is not fucking discriminate, man. I've said it a thousand times. It doesn't matter what you do, man. It can turn a fucking perfectly good little house or, you know, little girl into a fucking straight hood rat, you know what I mean, in seconds. And it's like, what the fuck just happened? You know, we hear about it all the time. It's like, I was a fucking straight-A student, you know what I mean? I was the fucking prom queen and blah, blah, blah. Next thing you know, I'm on fucking 12th and Imperial sucking cock for a dime bag. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just, it happens like fucking that. Yeah. And yeah. some people, unfortunately, faster than others. Yeah. You know, I think that it's a, a, a fortunate thing. Because I do hear and see a lot of people 
that have 10, 15, 20 years of using. Um, the way, I, I don't know how they stayed alive, okay? Um, but the way that I used, I feel like I wouldn't be alive. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were some, some things that, that scared me so bad. And I got so sick and tired of, of living the way I was living that I finally became willing. I found the willingness, right? And, and I was able to surrender and take the first step and get a sponsor and, and, and really dive into recovery for the first two years you know, hard. Um, and that's, that was my whole life. I didn't, I didn't socialize or do anything with anyone that was outside of AA. Um, uh, you know, I didn't go to, um, the old places. I didn't talk to the old people. Um, you know, I just, it, I was completely starting over in my life yeah. at that point. You know? <clears throat> What'd you do in Miami? Uh, I was there just hanging out. Oh, okay. Because I lived in Tampa, Florida. Oh, okay. And my buddy came out from San Diego, and we drove to Miami. How long were you in Tampa for? Uh, I was in Tampa for about a year and a half. And that was for work? Were you using out there? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, it was for work, so I got involved um, selling uh, network hardware, um, which is like servers and routers and switches and stuff to run server farms and um, ISPs and things like that, which ISP is Internet Service Providers. Um, and so I specialized in a, a brand of equipment called Foundry Networks, which was a niche market. And so I was brought out to run their sales department, um, which is crazy. When I think about it, 20-something years old, drunk and high every day. Yeah. And the, and, but that was, that's how I presented myself. You know, when I talk about being functional, that's what I mean. Right. You know? Um, Wolf of Wall Street shit. Yeah, I mean, it just was like, you know, wearing that mask. Yeah, you know. So, yeah, that was that was a crazy time. I'm I'm forever grateful for these experiences, though they shaped me to who I am, and and those experiences taught me a lot that I I now feel like I'm well versed in the world. Yeah, you know, and I can really handle any situation thrown at me, and not only that, but I feel like it it's a benefit to all the guys that come in my sober living because. I can relate to them and I can talk to them and, you know, I'm not like, oh, I've got 17 years and I'm better than you, you know? Um, and I don't know if anyone does that, but I, I, I feel like that could be a perception that they might have. Yeah. You know, I agree. And so it's, it's nice that I'm able to really kind of, to some extent, come down to their level and meet them where they're at, you know? Yeah. So, but, um, yeah, I mean, my my story in recovery is almost as crazy as my story outside of recovery. Right. And can I can I ask you a question real quick because yeah. it was still on my mind. I mean, obviously it was rough. But going back to what you were saying when you were homeless and staying in hotels with your friend and prostitutes, like, what was that like? Like, I mean, I know that I I, I could imagine that it was pretty fucking rough. I mean, I've done the whole hotel circuit myself, you know, but never have. You know any prostitutes, but I would just imagine that just comes with another form of chaos too. Yeah, so I think it's like I think everyone that knows me knows I have a young-looking face. You know, I'm 44 and I don't look 44. Uh, when I was in my 20s, I looked like I was like 13, 14 years old. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> so I had a baby face. Yeah. And um, look, a lot of the prostitutes that I met 
you know, had kids that weren't in their lives and stuff. And I think a lot of them had kind of a bleeding heart. And so they would take me in, you know, and feed me and all kinds of stuff like that. And that's, that was pretty good. But there were times I got myself in a lot of trouble, yeah. you know, um, I was, uh, told to wait in a closet once. Well, uh, two prostitutes brought in a trick and then I was supposed to jump out of the closet and rob him, which I did. Um, you know, there were, there were just different situations I found myself in, Yeah, you know, um, brutal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just brutal. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's goddamn, true. these goddamn fucking hoes <laughs> tricking me out. Goddamn it. What do you mean? I better get half of that shit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, well, one of them was a tranny and she was, um, I didn't have much, like, I didn't really know too much about it, but I knew she was a man, but she identified as a female. Sure. And she'd had the boob job and stuff like that. Um, and she used to always tell me, like, you need to take your white ass home because she was, um, like, mixed. And, uh, I mean, it was interesting because in, in her own way, she would, like, really support me. Yeah. You know? Like, always give me 20 bucks. Always. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, in that dysfunction, um, yeah, I mean, anyone that's that's lived that street life knows what I'm talking about. There's a dysfunction there, but somehow we, we live in it. Yeah. You know? Feels normal. Yeah. Brutal. 17 years clean. God damn, it's an amazing accomplishment, man. Especially for the life that you've had yeah. starting off at 18. I mean, obviously a lot of it, could you could have died in many situations. Yeah. Yeah. It's like today, today I think that you and I wouldn't even be here. I really, this fentanyl is just so powerful. And I've never experienced it, nor do I want to, because I know the addict that I am, and I would fucking die. Yeah. Yeah, I just know. And I would imagine that you would be the same story for you, too. Yeah. I mean, if the drugs didn't kill me, then I would have been killed by different people. Yeah. You know, at different times. I mean, you know, the closest I ever came to being killed by someone was a knife to my throat for getting caught breaking into their office. Um, I thought for sure that guy was going to cut me. Yeah, do do you in. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's interesting. Like I've, I've had guns pulled in a way where they weren't on my head or anything like that, but they were more shown, um, and threats were made. Yeah. But having a knife to your throat. Yeah. It's a little bit different by, by a man, a grown man who's two times your size mm -hmm. and knowing that there's not a single thing you can do to stop it. It's a different kind of fear that goes down your spine, you know, and uh, I've always had the gift of gab, been able to talk, and I've talked myself out of a lot of situations, and that was one of them. Right. Um, and I, I contribute that to remaining calm and looking at him in the eyes and apologizing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Makes sense. You know, and saying whatever I had to say. Yeah. You know, what were you doing? Just rifling through the shit in the office space? Uh, so I was hanging out with this girl and my buddy and we were at this bar in Del Mar, like right on the edge of Rancho Santa Fe. And she met this dude who was a real estate guy that had an office next door. And so he took us all over there to do lines. And so I went over there and um, I put a piece of gum in the door jam so I could get back or in the in the door lock so I could get back in. Yeah. And um and so once we all left, he closed it, locked it. He didn't check it. And so then they walked out to the front, and I got overzealous, and I turned around and went back before I was out of his view. 
And I went back and I opened it and I went in there and I saw there was like a wallet and some other stuff I was going to grab. Yeah. And so right as I opened the door, he grabbed me from the back and there's a brick wall right there. And he pulled me up against that and put a knife right to my throat. And you just kind of wait. Yeah, I <laughs> you're such wait. a fucking dope feed. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? You, you, had, you had a chance, but I get it, though. Yeah. It's like our this crazy disease intuition or whatever it is, like, go, 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 go. You know, you got to do it now, now. Yeah. Even though we could have just waited, but yeah. no. we it's like the eye on the prize, baby. Yep. Yep. Wow. Yeah, that was... What uh, a fucking... Obviously, he wasn't too fucked off, or maybe he was too fucked off, and he was very observant of you. Yeah. Maybe he's already like, I don't fucking trust this kid. Yeah, for sure. I didn't, I mean, I, I definitely, I think I carried myself, and I think most addicts do. When we're doing dirt, we carry ourselves a certain way. Mm. It makes us very untrustworthy to, to the normal folk, right? Yeah. And I definitely had that. Yeah. It took a long time for that to wear off in recovery. Like, I still had to deal with people not trusting me for years huh. once I was actually clean and sober. Um, that, that was something that used to just really get at me. Is that damn man? I still people just don't trust me, yeah. and I realized it had a lot to do with the way that I carried myself. I looked at the ground a lot when I walked. Um, you know the way my facial expression was. It was always scanning, mm. always scanning around. A lot of those behaviors we get from from you know that survival mentality, mm. and um, I had to find a way to never lose the survival mentality, but change the way that I was walking through the world. And I was able to do that because now people do trust me and, and I, I don't believe that they look at me and say, okay, that guy looks like he's up to no good, you know? I like that whole scanning thing in your, your facial expressions, man. Your facial expressions can turn somebody off so fast. So fast. Still to this day, I still get it. And I'm like, I have a scar above my eye and fucking the... <laughs> this is the family genetic, like I promise you. Inside, I see rainbows and butterflies. The way I look, I can't help, okay? Blame my fucking parents. Yeah. <laughs> so you're just saying, though, your time in recovery is a pretty wild story, too. What, what were you going to go with that? Yeah, so, um, you know, I came up in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I think I'd gone to, like, one Narcotics Anonymous meeting. Um, and I don't want to break traditions, um, but... Well, yeah, I'm not going to break traditions. So, so coming up in recovery, I I pretty much um, tried to find my herd. Sure. Okay. And I struggled same way I did in high school, junior high, and everything else. Um, I struggled because uh, I think that I would go into these different head trips. You know, not everything was true or real, but my head would tell me it was. And um, and so that would sometimes, like, keep me at a distance from getting really close to people. And I think human beings, when they, when they start to open up to you and you don't reciprocate that, they shut down real quick on you. Yeah. And that's how it was. Absolutely. You know? Um, I didn't know how to open up, you know? And I mean, only until last year am I really learning how to open up uh, to people. Um, I've just always really been like kept everything super close to my chest, you know. And so uh, what's going on, guys? Dustin with the LFG 1904 show. Proud to announce our partnership with Law Tigers. If you have been in a motorcycle accident, let's get you the compensation you deserve today and get you back on the road. Go ahead and call this number 303-333-3333. 
858-306-1986. Once again, that number is 858-306-1986. Law Tigers, nationwide, doesn't matter where you're at, call that number, LFG. Um, and that goes that just goes to show you from what you just said earlier. Yeah. That childhood damage. Yeah. You're just a lock and key. Nobody's going to hurt me. Yep. If I don't say nothing, you can't hurt me. You can you can tell me all your shit all you want. Yeah. But that's you're not going to get nothing from me. Yeah, I mean I would pick and choose yeah. for sure. For yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And um you know when I when when you and I talked about doing this podcast, I made a decision that I was going to try and do my damnedest to be the most open I can be just because there's a lot of different people I know in the rooms that listen to this podcast and um, this is a great way for me to open up to everyone at once exactly without doing it you know that's what I tell people all the time <laughs> if the majority of the time they'll just say hey I heard your podcast awesome you know I mean yeah. that's what's great <laughs> yeah. very seldomly have I somebody been like man you probably shouldn't have said that man yeah, maybe yeah well no. you know that's whatever Hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah, for it's every, my show. Go get your own show, yeah. you fucking cocksucker. <laughs> right. Still sick. Yep. <laughs> Still sick when I choose to. Yeah, be. I know exactly. Um. But no, I get it. I love the feedback though too. I really do. Good, bad, it doesn't matter. Because I mean, it's when you're doing something, you want to grow and get better, just like you do in your businesses. You know, you just said it. You know, with your sober living, you got to just grow. And, and the the more the more that you do, the better you're off you're going to be. But yeah. still. So, you know, yeah, yeah. Well, last time I checked, there's no such thing as a perfect human, so yeah, I know that's all right, but yeah, I um, I uh tried my damnedest to find my herd in this in this recovery program, and I really um found that I was still seeking that negative attention, and so some of my uh previous behaviors would come back, uh, mainly what I got really big into was, was like the gossiping and shit talking behind people's backs, you know, and, um, people that I felt slighted me or people that I felt didn't show me the respect that I showed them. That was a big one for me because when I was living on the streets and the people I was hanging out with, it was all about respect. And, um, it was a very skewed view on the world that I had back then. And, um, and so I didn't feel like I fit in, and I met um, I met a girl, and once her and I linked up, I pretty much stopped going to meetings, and I pretty much made a decision, hey, it's just me and her, mm. we're going to do this. And um, we got engaged, and she uh, was working for Louis Vuitton at the time, and she got an opportunity to open up some stores in L.A., which meant moving up there. I had um, an e-cigarette business. This is uh, like 2008. I had an e-cigarette business um, that I just sold, and I just went into wholesale and manufacturing of e-cigarettes, what we now call vapes. Yeah. And we moved to L.A. We moved to Sherman Oaks. Um, you know, we... I, I think I already mentioned I was kind of a weirdo, so I'll get into some of that. So I told her when she cornered me and said, you know, is this a relationship or what are we doing? We had that conversation, and I said, look, I'm not a cheater, and so I'm going to tell you I don't think I can be with just one woman for the rest of my life. And that was as honest as I could be. And she responded back, okay, well, as long as we're together, that's fine. 
And I said, wait, do you want to repeat that one more time? <laughs> yeah, do you want to write that? Hold on, let me record yeah, this. Yes. And so um, I didn't test that for another six months, and then I did. Mm. And that set us off on a journey of exploration together for about four years. Um, wow. That involved being in an open relationship. That involved um, getting involved in the adult film industry. That involved a few things. And I've always been a real curious type person. And so I kind of don't just like open the cover to the rabbit hole. I jump right in. Yeah. And and so I did that on a couple of, of instances that honestly I wish now I never had. Uh, there's some stuff that you, you, unfortunately, when you share with people, you can never take it back. You know, they're always going to judge you for it. Yeah. And, um, so that's an unfortunate thing. Yeah. And, and I live with those decisions, you know, um, I have regrets about, about some things that I, I co-signed in that relationship because they did her a lot of damage. Mm. Um, but I did, you know, I didn't pick up or use, but I wasn't, a, I wasn't in recovery. You know, and so I'm partying in the Hollywood Hills with celebrities and there's mountains of cocaine and alcohol and there's everything everywhere, you know, and there's models from Europe shooting heroin in the bathroom. There's everything is there. Yeah. And um, I didn't ever feel like I wanted to use, you know, which why is that? That's bizarre. Um, I mean, I, I mean, it's not bizarre. I mean, you obviously surrendered at yeah. some point. Right. Yeah. I think because I knew exactly where it leads me. Yeah. That, that, see, I always tell newcomers and, and anyone I've sponsored, never forget your last time using, <sighs> you know? Fucking and, let them know. Yeah, and, and, like, that's where it was, man. That's always stayed very vivid in my mind. Um, just the, the complete demoralization I felt that last use. Yeah. You know, sitting on that bluff <laughs> like, I'd, like I'd reverted back to a homeless kid, um, sitting on that bluff. Uh, in La Jolla by myself at 4 a.m. High. Yeah. You know, it's just, yeah. uh, it, it, there's no future. Yeah. There's no future in that. What, what, how old were you at this time? Um, Tw- 2008. Uh, so let's see, I would have been, um, well, I guess it doesn't really matter. Well, I would have fa- been 28. The fact that, so 28, I mean, the fact that you were young still, and had all these things in front of you, yeah. And you're not working a program anymore. Mm-mm. You're do, you're doing you're doing the most. I mean, nowadays people just have OnlyFans, but yeah. you know you're all you're all up in the industry and these people, and it's like it's so available. Well, let's not forget about the money, because yeah. I cross addicted hard on money. Mm. So I didn't pick up drugs or alcohol, but I did pick up some other things. Mm. I picked up the sex. I picked up the money, right? I picked up. Um, a little bit of that, like, celebrity-itis, they call it. Yeah. You know, where I'm with someone who TMZ gives a shit about, you know, um, and I'm hanging out with people that the world gives a shit about. Yeah. A-listers, B-listers, you know? Yeah. And I felt like I was part of, you know? Mm. Um, and so it was all a facade. But the money, when the money, that was a big trigger for me, you know? Um some of the ventures, the business ventures that her and I got into made a lot of money. And um, there was a point in my life where, you know, I had two cars, you know, big house in Woodland Hills. Um, everything I wore was designer, 
my shoes were eighteen hundred dollars. You know, my uh, hoodies were you know twenty four hundred. Like, I mean, everything I had, and it's kind of like how I did my drugs. Right, had to use it all at once. I had to spend all the money. I had huh. to spend it all. Yeah. Um, and and I had to also represent something that wasn't real. And I got completely lost once again about who who is Kelsey, who who is this person, right? Um, and so that's in my mind that was um, what I had to come back from when I came back to recovery. Is like I had to get back to who the hell I am. And living a life that I'm proud to live and I want to live. Because believe it or not, I didn't want to live that life. You know, I broke up with her and I walked away from all of it. And I made that decision one night and I put it into action the next day. And that was it, you know, and I came back to San Diego. And people that know me from those times are still confused to this day. Why? Yeah, why would you leave? Why would you leave all that money and why would you leave, you know? And it's because um, my disease, it's not going to let me be happy yeah. like that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. If And people can relate. They fucking know. It doesn't matter what you have going on. If you're just fucking dead inside still or something's going on internally, you're just lost in the fucking sauce, you know? Yeah. I mean, it is crazy, though. I mean, that's why I asked if you ever had, like, you know, thoughts of using again. And like, that was the reason why you got out of it. But, yeah. you know, internally it's like the same thing. Our diseases are a disease. It doesn't matter if we're using or not it's still there. hundred percent. I mean, um, when I decided to come back to recovery the night before I'd had the first using dream I'd had in over 10 years. <laughs> yeah. And Welcome it was, back. it was so intense that I literally woke up and I thought I used I mean, it was just that bad. Yeah. Um, and I didn't use drugs. I thought I took a shot. I mean, it was like the weirdest thing, you know? Um, and and that that was, for me, the wake-up call I needed to realize the path I'm on is going to lead me back to destruction. Yeah. And also, I felt like I was participating in the destruction of others, the path I was on. I know I was because um, I was complicit, mm. you know? I'm not going to escape it. Right. You're not going to escape shit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, well, I mean, I'm not going to run away from my accountability. Yeah. You know, I was complicit in what I was complicit in. And, um, if you're a part of it, you're making money on it. You're, you're, you know, you're part of the problem. Yeah. And I didn't want to be part of, part of that problem anymore. So um, you just left. I walked Gone. away. Yeah. Um, I did try. So I did help my ex fiance get out of that industry. Okay. All right. Uh, the way that I did that was I contacted her father who hates me hated me uh probably still does and i told him what was going on and then she she left her father had a lot of money so he brought she she had a um mechanical engineering degree so she was a smart girl smart and so she went to go work for uh, a company and her dad i think gave her one of his houses in san francisco that he owned and so we haven't talked um that would have been we broke up in uh 2000 and I want to say 2010, we broke up, and uh, we haven't talked since. Really? Yeah. Nothing? Nothing. Why? Um, I can't answer that. You know, I, I, I do know that her dad paid a lot of money to have her name and images removed from the Internet. 
Um, and that's a lot of money, pal. It's a lot. <laughs> I mean, to do something like that is yeah. a lot of money. Yeah. Jesus um, Christ. What did he do? I, I, I don't know, but like one day she was readily available to see online. Like you could just type in her stage name or her real name. Yeah. And everything would come up. Now you do need her stage name in order for it to come up. Yeah. Her real name doesn't bring up anything. That's good. And so I'm, I'm, yeah, I mean, I'm happy. Dad, dad's like, I'll pay whatever. Don't, I don't want to ever. Yeah. I don't want my fucking girlfriends to see this shit. Yeah. So, you know, I mean. Well, maybe that was some of it too. She, you know, the dad's like, you're never going to talk to this guy again. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's But you right. never tried either. I reached out once on LinkedIn. Mm. I sent an email. Yeah. And just to kind of extend the olive branch. But I also realized that um, if I was part of her trauma, she may not be ready for that. And who am mm -hmm. I to try and, you know, control or be forceful or anything? So I left it alone. I said, okay, you know, she, I'm not hiding. Like, I have Facebook. I have everything. Yeah. Like, if she ever wants to, she can reach out. Yeah. You know? So. And, uh, and that's what it is. I mean, everyone takes a different amount of time to go through their shit. So, yeah, they gotta, they gotta do, do you think she's in recovery? I have no idea. Yeah. You have no idea. No idea. I, I don't know that she was an addict or alcoholic. Um, I think that every girl who decides to work in sex work, picks up drugs and alcohol to numb what they're going through. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that means they're all addicts and alcoholics. So, yeah, um, I agree. Yeah, I mean, well, I guess it, only time will tell. <laughs> I mean, if, <clears throat> is that something that you would want, though? I mean, obviously you did reach out, but is it more of like an amends or more of like, hey, I hope you're doing well? Yeah, I, I think the best way I can answer that is say I'll always have love for her. Yeah. Always. You know, she was a very important person in my life. Um, and at the same time, I, I recognize that we're not compatible in a relationship. So my motive would be mainly to find out if there's any chance of being friends on some level. Yeah. But at the same time, I mean, it's, it's all right if that's not what happens. Yeah. You know, it, might, it, it ran its course. It was what it was. And it goes down in the memory banks. Mm. And it gets left there. You know? So because I... I used to be that person that would try and control how other people reacted or felt mm. right control the narrative yeah and love I'm, it i'm not that person now so i'm not gonna try and do that stuff right that's so. good so you got back to san diego yeah from this and you just basically had to surrender again and start all over yeah so i came back to san diego and i had two wholesale clients that we decided to open up a vape shop in santee Called United Vapes. It was on Mission Gorge Road, and um, that got to be fairly successful in the early stages. And then a major falling out with one of the business partners. Um, I mean, he was essentially stealing from the company, and I was calling him out on it. And uh, it just it went downhill. So, welcome to my first lawsuit. <laughs> so I got an attorney, and um, uh, we we essentially uh, settled out of court. Um, it was better for me. I got double what I put into it. Um, and then I went and I opened up my vape shop in Point Loma called Eliminator Vapes, uh, which is no longer there. 
Um, thanks, COVID. <laughs> and um, and so I had that shop for six years. Wow. Um, and so I would go to my meetings and I'd be at the shop, you know, but I still was very much in a sick head space. I won't go into what I was doing. Um, I leave that for for talking with my sponsor, but um, I was very much still in a sick head space when it came to women and it came to how I went about um, getting women. Yeah. And so um, I had to I had to dig out all that all that stuff, right? I had to eliminate all that whatever it was inside me, which I know is fear and and I know that it was actually ego. Um, a lot of what was going on, there's some things that changed. I, I was living in LA and I was actually in, in good shape and I had a lot going for me, right? I feel like I was a better looking person and I had money and all that stuff, right? So the, the class of women that were attracted to me or seeking me changed and I wasn't ready for that change. And, and I felt like, well, it's because I don't have the money and it's because now I got a gut and it's because I'm older and you know, I had all these excuses. And then what, what I realized after working on this stuff is that none of that was it. <laughs> it had to do with me, yeah. how I carried myself, how I spoke, you know, what, what I would say that was inappropriate. Um, and so I'm working steps with my sponsor on relationships right now. And the, the motive for that is because I want to eradicate all that behavior. Right. And, um, I would love to be in a committed relationship with a best friend, but that's easier said than done. And, uh, you know, I look up to the people that are in healthy relationships and I mean, that's one of the reasons I chose my sponsor, um, those healthy relationships. Look, I'm not saying a perfect relationship, but a healthy relationship where, you know, two people are striving to succeed in life and they're friends and they genuinely love each other. They're not stepping out on each other. They're not manipulating each other. Though that's what I want in my life, right? And so that's what what I'm seeking. But it's difficult to to get there, and I think that it's difficult right now because maybe I'm not ready. Maybe I want to be ready, but I'm not. Right? It's a tough pill to swallow because I I want what I want. And I yeah. want it now. <laughs> me, me, me. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm a I'm a big believer that you know God will put somebody in, in front of you when when you're ready. Yeah, you know, and it, you know, us guys, you know, we like to, you know, have you know multiple women to at, at our access at all times, especially when you know, especially when we're single, right? But yeah, I just things work out the way they're supposed to if we just stop pushing it and forcing it, right? But that's fantastic. I'm doing uh, same thing, step work on relationships too, and. It's going to make, I know it's going to make me have better relationships with people and how to communicate with one another yeah. better. I mean, even if they don't, at least I am. I, I just, that's the greatest part about steps and working on yourself. It doesn't really matter what the other people are doing. It's just better for me because I'm a better human being. And I can handle their behavior much easier and better or their fucking chaotic fucking bullshit, you know? Yeah. But <coughs> that's, that's your, I mean, <coughs> That's it, right? I want to be a better version of myself because yeah. when I work a fourth and I identify the patterns, like I see and I hear a lot of people that self-diagnose all the time, right? And I was, I did the same shit. And now I feel like as I've gotten older, I've matured to a level where I don't 
self-diagnose anymore. Now I got to do the work to find out what's really going on. And um, at 17 years, continue, continuing to work steps, continuing to keep up the meeting schedule I do, uh, stay involved in my recovery in the way I do, um, I believe that I'm setting further foundation for a life life filled with recovery, right? And um, recovery isn't just abstaining for me. Recovery is recovering from the patterns, recovering from these bad habits um, that you know, get in the way of my life and create unmanageability and recklessness. Right. And, and so that's why that's, that's the inspiration that I have for, for doing those things. It's like, I'm no longer waving the flag saying, I want to be a good guy. It's like, no, put the flag down. I'm going to do the work to become a good guy. Yeah. Right. And, and that to me is, is the crux of my recovery is like, this is the core of it. Yeah, you're you're totally changing and evolving in somebody else. Mm-hmm. That's fucking neat. That's really cool. And so, you you were at the other fellowship for many years, and then now you're yeah. at a different fellowship, and you're starting all over that way, correct? I am. Yeah. So it's been about two and a half, almost three years in this other fellowship, and um, I'm I'm finding that it's it's been challenging for me to relate because I've. I've reverted to some old behaviors in the beginning when I first walked in the rooms here um, where I thought that I had to be more like the convict or more like that to fit in. And I'm now reverting out of that back to who I am. Um, And I think that that's, you know, a character defect of mine. It's a people-pleasing defect that I have, um, wanting to fit in, right? And I need to care less about fitting into people that I'm not a good match for and invest in the relationships that invest in me. And so that's, you know, start of the new year, that's what I took on, is I'm only going to be investing in those relationships, and I'm going to disconnect from the ones that I shouldn't be involved with. It's a good move. And, I'm, I'm doing the same thing. And some people, they have not taken too kindly to that. Yeah. Others have. Others probably didn't care. Um, I'm not that important, so it's all right. Um, but that's just... That's where my head needs to be at. It's a healthy mindset. You know, stop trying to be everyone's fucking friend. Yeah. You know? And um, and there's people that I really get along with on a level outside of our recovery uh, that we have in common. It's like who they are as people. I enjoy them. I like them. Um, I get along with them. You know, uh, there's a couple people that on the outside when I first met them, I thought I had nothing in common with or didn't get along with or whatever. And since then like these amazing relationships have blossomed, you know, and I've, I've never been to prison. I, I don't know what the yard is like. Yeah. Okay. And some of these people have been to prison and, um, but they don't carry that with them. It's not all they talk about. You have the guys who have a lot of years that still talk about that yard life. And to me, it's the same as like war storying all the time. Yeah. You know, it's like, we're supposed to leave that in the past. Yeah, I know. I have a friend just it made me remind because yes i'm obviously I, I know a few people like that too but i have a friend uh, he's not even a friend anymore but me and me and my other friend that i grew up with we talk about this often and it's like you know he reverts and talks about these past things that were like 20 years ago and he's living them still yeah and, you know and, and this guy has no recovery so it's like some of the people that we know that have recovery it's like come on yeah you know Let's let's talk about a you know when you, for me, 
when I when I get into recovery, it's all about change. It's constantly changing. You know, I don't want to be the same person that I was fucking two hours ago. I really want to be something different and better. So why do we keep talking about the same things? Right. There's no point. Right. And I say that to my sponsees all the time. Like, we're, we're, we're going to do this to become better men. You know, and, th- and this is what we're going to do. We're not going to cheat on our wives. We're not going to lie to our friends. We're not going to be dishonest to people. Right. We're going to look at it, somebody in the eye, you know, because there's so many times why I couldn't even look at people in the eye. Yeah. You know, but... um. It's funny how people do that, though. They still want to... Th- Bro, that's the past, man. That was 20 fucking years ago. Yeah. Like, we're living yeah. today. Yeah. I don't give a shit about that. Well, and neither should you. Yeah, I wonder sometimes if it's because we run out of something to talk about. And Possibly. we know we know that, that we can always relate to that person talking about that. Um, or we got funny stories that we want to share, you know, keep the conversation going. And I get all that. You yeah, know? I get and, that, too. And everyone's going to socialize how they socialize. I, I, I'm not here to say what's right or wrong, but for me, it doesn't make sense for me to sit there and talk about how it was being homeless. It doesn't make sense to sit there and talk about all the crimes I did or to talk about the Tweaker Ranch or it just doesn't make sense. You know, I might have snippets of conversations about that stuff with the people that were there and then we'd leave it, you know, because it's not something I don't want to I don't want to come off like I'm glamorizing something that was trauma in my life. You know, yeah. trauma is not to be glamorized. So, um, but I, I, I see and hear a lot of people that do that all the time. And if, if that's, if their life is happy and they're cool with it, then by all means, you know, good, cool. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, and it boils down to like my first sponsor ever told me is like, you know, there's a time and a place for a war story and it's when you're asked to speak yeah. and, and you don't glamorize it. You touch on it. It should be less than. Uh, what do you say? Less of one sixteenth of your share. <laughs> yeah. So, um, because we're here to spread a message of recovery, and war story and recovery don't sit in the same seat. So, no. um, you know, it's where we all come from, and we can relate to each other from the dirt we did, or we can relate to each other from the recovery that we're practicing, and and that's the relationships I'm feeding today is the recovery that they're practicing. You know, I want more of that. You know. And I've always been a person who has been drawn to people that are, are similar to me in the way that they think. They have conspiracy theories. They're like, fuck the government. They're, you know, they're, they're anarchists at heart um, and that they have hard time socializing. I've always been drawn to those people. Right. You know, because on my core, I re- man, I'm yeah, one of you. That's you. It's <laughs> you me. Know? I identify with you. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally agree. I mean, I think going into this year, too, and I've talked about it in previous years, but I just didn't stick with it. I want to be around people that don't feel the need to talk about other people, especially when they're not present, you know. And um, I think that we all get wrapped up into who's doing who and what is happening. And Right. But at the end of the day, it has nothing to do with my household. Right. You know what I mean? And, uh, I mean, unless, it, unless it's something really traumatic and somebody needs help or assistance, you know, I'll definitely partake in that conversation. But when it comes to so-and-so is doing this, like, I don't fucking care. Yeah. I don't fucking care. It has nothing to do with my wife and my kids or my business or my f- close friends, you know. I mean, unless you're talking about them, I would say I would hope that you go tell them, you know. And it's funny that when you call people out that are doing that, it's, it's very interesting to see the look that you get, you know. But, you know, we're in recovery and we're supposed to do better. 
Yeah. And talking about other people behind their backs is not doing better. That's just, that's addict behavior. You know, your, your, your disease is allowing you to do that. Well, if I'm not mistaken, in, in, uh, in one of our pieces of literature, um, there's a section, and I won't quote it verbatim, but there's a section that talks about um, that, you know, a, a guide or a sponsor is someone who is going to call you out on your bullshit, yeah. right? And um, it also says the same person that's going to show you grace, love, and kindness and answer your questions. And um, I think that if we don't have someone or people in our lives that do that, then we, we are still trying to be the masters of our universe because we got no one to bounce that shit off of, mm. right? Like, I wouldn't be where I'm at today if I didn't have certain people in my life that were not scared to give it to me raw and straight. Yeah. And I don't like it when it happens, right? But I learn from it, and I do uh, reflect on it, right? I'll get pretty upset. I've gotten pretty upset with, with a mutual friend of ours. Everyone knows. If you know him, he hangs a lot of Christmas lights. But I got pretty upset um, last year, and I left him at a meeting. I walked, walked and got an Uber home, and he was calling me on some shit that was pretty serious, and... Um, I'll forever be grateful for him doing that because in a matter of hours, him and I were talking and I realized I, I was the one that was completely wrong, mm. you know, and powerful. Yeah. And, and so I'm, I'm grateful for that shit, honestly. And it's, it, it makes me stronger in my recovery. It makes me become a better person. And that's what I want. And if you don't have that, I, I feel sorry for you because we all need it as human beings. We all need that. And I do believe it comes best from other people in recovery. I know some people like to say my family does it or my coworker or whatever. Yeah. Uh, you know, whatever. I do have some some opinions on things. On that one, I'm going to call bullshit. I think a person in recovery who's walked the same path as you knows and that they can see and they can tell you and you need to hear it the way that they're telling you, you know, even if you don't like it, even if it hurts your feelings. Um, that's like raw recovery right there, you know? Yeah. Straight up, you know, Uh, this, this idea of today's, you know, recovery about worrying about everyone's feelings. I can't relate to that. That's not the recovery I came into. The recovery I came into was sit down, shut up. When we want to hear from the disease, we'll call on you. You know, (laughs) that's how it was. Work the steps or die. Work the steps or die. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and now it's like, oh, I don't want to say that. They're going to they're gonna relapse over it. Well, I don't have that much control over you to make you relapse, first of all. Okay? Me telling you about something I'm seeing for you to take a look at, if you want to run and relapse over it, you had reservations before. Had nothing to do with me telling you, hey, take a look at this. It had to do with you getting caught. Right. And now you're going to go use. All right? So, and I know that, that my opinions are just my opinions. Right. But that's the recovery I came up in. And that's my sponsees get that kind of recovery from me when we sit down and we talk and we do steps. And, um, you know, it's. It is a. Treacherous world when we're using. Um, It's not soft. There's nothing uh, rainbow and hugs about it. There ain't nothing like that (laughs) on the streets, bro. So walking into recovery and, and getting the hugs is great, you know, but 
if we don't keep it real, then we're cheating these newcomers. Mm. I, I sincerely believe that. We got to keep it real. Right? So. Absolutely. That's a good fucking bit right there, baby. Pow! <laughs> well, what else do you want to talk about, buddy? Because uh, so far, I mean, this has been a great show. This is what I love this platform for. We can talk about Coke hookers, hotels, <laughs> raids, you know, and then you wheel it right back into recovery, and, and you've had, you know... 17 years is a long time to stay clean, my friend. It's a long and especially, time. especially, listen, especially, especially when you're running a muck and you're, st- and you're in a, the adult, uh, adult industry with my, mountains of coke and all of these things, and you still, you didn't pick up. Yeah. It's so great. That's great. That's, uh, now, for the newcomer that's listening or even the person that has multiple years, don't try that at home. It's not, yeah. that's not going to work for everybody. Trust and believe that. Yeah. I mean, the obsession to use was, was removed. Right. And so there's, there, there used to be this thing. Well, it says it in a piece of literature in the other fellowship where, um, it talks about being recovered and what they're talking about is being recovered from a hopeless state of mind. All right. And I have been recovered from a hopeless state of mind, um, at various points in my recovery. And then I've fallen out of that, you know, but I believe it's because of the foundation of recovery that I had that I was able to steer my ship back to recovery. Right. Yeah. Makes you know? sense. Um, it's like follow the breadcrumbs. Yeah. Get back home. You know. And 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 my experience in the world and living a normal life and, and being out there is that if left to my own devices, I create unmanageability. Right. And you know, if anyone out there can relate to that. The way that I have solved that problem is to stay close to recovery, all right? And so, <coughs> once again, I'm surrendered to the fact that I will forever be in, in recovery and have something to do with my recovery. I will never just depend on it to always be there and take it for granted. And that's been my experience over 17 years that I always have to do that. Now, that doesn't mean I'm a saint. doesn't mean I'm a perfect person, and I still fuck up just as good as the next person. But now I have the tools to make amends for those fuck-ups, um, and I have the tools to not hopefully repeat those, t- those fuck-ups. Um, and, and, you know, some habits are harder to break than others, and I, that's also part of my experience. It's been very difficult to break some habits. Mm. Um, but ultimately, if I, can, if I can live a life that I'm proud to live that um, attracts good people into my life and represents a good role model for my kid, um, then I'll die a happy man. Absolutely. You know, it's not about the material shit that's going to make no. me happy. Not not for me either. I mean, it's a, the more you grow, the, the people evolve and change all the time. And the things that I wanted five years ago are not even the same things that I want today. Yeah. You know, and vice versa, even a year ago, but you know, we involve and we just become better people as long as we keep doing the work. And it's funny when we stop doing the work, we revert. I'm sorry, let me say, I revert back to old behaviors so fucking quick. Oh, yeah. So oh, yeah. quick. And it, it just, it's in seconds. And it's so fucking heartbreaking for myself when I revert back to that because it's like, man, did I fucking learn anything? Yep. You know, and. The, the moment that I that I'm hard on myself, I have to remember that I'm still fucking just an addict. You know, I'm just still somebody that's trying to do better every day. Well, and and normies, quote unquote, people mm-hmm. that are not in recovery, um, you know, 
there's there's I mean I see the same fuck ups <laughs> in yeah. that world too from right. those people you know I don't think I think it's human nature a lot of it because at our core we're still um, we're still animals and yeah. so there's some some things in our DNA you know and um, and so we're trying to adapt to society standards and rules of what's appropriate and what society's gonna accept yeah from I us agree. right and that's changing a lot in the last 10 years a lot and I know not only myself, but a lot of my friends have had a difficult time adapting to that because we're not in agreement with it. Um, you can't just tell us that the world's changed because you want it to. Um, we grew up in a different world than what we see today, you know? And for the younger generation, this is your world. I get it. This is what you know. So I try my best to, to listen and hear people out, but I don't agree. I don't agree just to fit in, you know. No, I, I, I'm glad that you're identifying as a dog. I don't <laughs> care, <laughs> you know. Dude, these stories are wild. <laughs> I mean, they are fucking buck wild. This guy is identifying as a 13 year old girl, yeah, and is allowed into the fucking locker rooms. And I'm like, how is this possible? Well, guess what? 13. He's claiming that he's a 13 year old little girl, mind you. He's 50 years old. Mm-hmm. And he walks into the fucking girl's bathroom and, and locker room with a fucking heart on. Yeah. And then they arrest him. But it's like, I would, I, I don't even, I can't fathom like what's going on. I just don't understand. Right. It. And honestly, I can't, I won't listen to somebody that just going to try to explain it to me because it's like, I feel like they're fucking brainwashed and I don't want to hear it. Like, I just don't understand it. Well, it, it boils down to this. You know, we've heard the term cancel culture before, right? And we've heard the term woke before, yeah. right? Yeah. And um, I don't know a lot about the whole woke thing. I haven't chosen to read about it or anything. Uh, what I do know about it is that it's not me. I'm not, I don't fit in with that uh, mentality. Um, and the cancel culture, I think, is a great depiction of where we've come as a result of, of our inability to manage social media and the platform that that is. Um, we have opinions as human beings. And when enough opinions are said, you get followers who come in and want to agree with all those opinions. And now it looks like a mountain of people saying no to you. And that's never been in our world before until now. We're living in that time, right? And so if you do something and say you're a business, for example, Right. And and I don't know how many people know this, but we had to do this neutral gender restroom thing if you're a retail business or you mm-hmm. offer a public restroom. And that all came about because businesses were getting sued. Right. And the thing is, you can make a personal choice to do whatever you want in this world. All right. If you want to make a personal choice to go and stroll the boulevard and sell what you got. OK. If you want to make a personal choice to identify as a woman. OK. Right. I'm, I'm not biased towards you. What I'm biased towards is when you start pushing that down my throat and make me have to deal with it when it's not my choice because that's no longer, um, that's no longer the freedom that I grew up in. Mm-hmm. Now I'm feeling controlled. Now I'm feeling like you're making me do something I don't want to do. You're making me believe something I don't believe. Right? 100%, bro. You fucking just nailed that. I mean, that's... Forbade them. It's like we're so divided now, too. 
it's like it, it is it's bizarre it's 50 50 and i'm like man we need somebody in the middle like yeah. there has to be there has to be another solution like this is not yeah. this is not the way it's supposed to be i just know and i feel it you know and i'm i don't know like i, I don't have that much education to fucking really deep dive into it but i know that the things that are slamming down our throats like you said yeah. i'm not feeling it man yeah that's that's creating further division but one thing i know about human nature is that things repeat themselves right and so just like this is going on i believe that there's probably going to be an end date and things are going to change again um and i think that there will be some balance had because I just have to believe there's enough people out there that just are not okay with being forced to believe or live a certain way or make exceptions a certain way yeah. where that's not how we grew up, you know? And I wish the other side that doesn't agree with what I'm saying would take a look and understand that, hey, how would you like it if we did this to you? And, and I've heard the argument before, well, we had to live in shame and bias and all this stuff for so many years, right, that they were repressed and yeah. they were victimized and all this and i get that and i'm not saying that we should ever go back to that um, what i am saying though is that balance is going to be key you do you and everyone else does them and everyone can accept that you say you are who you say you are that's fine you know but needing the special bathrooms and needing these special exceptions that interfere with our children that interfere with our beliefs that interfere with the, the world that we know it to be. Yeah, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It does not work. I mean, <clears throat> it's so funny. But the last, the first hour of Tucker Carlson's interview with Putin, there was like 18 million views or something like that. That's fucking an absurd. That's crazy. Oh, wow. Did you hear anything about that? No. It's insane. And honestly, I don't really get into politics. Or, I mean, it's really not politics, but... I mean, here here he is, you know, a fucking reporter in in Moscow talking to fucking Putin about world fucking shit. You know what I mean? And yeah. And the guy straight up said he's like, I haven't even talked to Biden. And he was saying that the previous you know president they had a relationship, and you know there he was here is Tucker Carlson like pleading and trying to talk him out of like why are we at why why are we at war? You know why are you at war? And and Putin's like showing these documents from like eighteen thirty. BC, you know what I mean? Like, of yeah. like the whole scenario is fucking insane. I watched a little bit of it, I didn't watch all of it, but I just thought that I'm like, man, that's crazy that that many people tuned in to hear what a reporter has to talk to, you know, with somebody else. Yeah. Like Putin. Yeah. Fucking wild. I want to tell you a story. Um, do we have time for a story? Of course we do. Okay, cool. So um, I got involved in e cigarettes in like 2007, mid 2007, and I got out of that business in 2020. And um, I had no idea what I was signing up for when I got into it. And the reason I got into it was to quit smoking cigarettes. Yeah. Because I was um, with my girlfriend at the time before she was my fiance, and we were hanging out with uh, some friends. And um, her friend was dating a girl from Paris. And so we're hanging out, and this girl from Paris had this little e-cigarette. I'd never seen one before. But I do know that we're downtown San Diego. We're at the top of a hotel. And to go all the way down and have a cigarette, my girlfriend at the time was like, just don't have one. Yeah. She didn't want me to leave. Right. I'd be gone for half an hour, you know, dealing with that, waiting for the elevators and everything. Yeah. And I saw, I saw this guy's girlfriend using an e-cigarette. And I said, hey, what is that? And she said, oh, it, you know, 
And she told me what it was, electronic cigarette. And I was like, huh. And I said, can I try it? You know, and I tried it. And that got me through three hours of sitting there with them. Right. You know, yeah. it did. Like yeah. a couple puffs here and there. Yeah. I didn't like that I got some fluid in my mouth occasionally. And, you know, it didn't feel as strong as a cigarette did. Yeah. It didn't have the throat hit that a cigarette did. But it did curb the nicotine need. And so a light bulb went off. Mm. Right. And I said, hey. And I started researching. And there was really nobody selling these things in San Diego. And I, I decided to open up some kiosks. And, and that started the journey, right? Fast forward, um, where I sold the kiosk business uh, to a company called uh, Vapure, right? Well, I shouldn't say that because it wasn't a sale, but I gave up my kiosks and they took them over, okay? And I had talked to those guys when they were first starting out and we were trying to see if we could do business together and everything. And um, they kind of already had a strategy that ended up being super successful for them. So I don't blame them for not wanting to bring someone else in on it. Right. Um, but they, they ended up doing real well for themselves. I, I wanted out of the kiosk business because we were moving to L.A. And in L.A., I wanted to set up uh, a wholesale distribution to all the smoke shops and liquor stores and gas stations, which I did. And that company was called Global Smoke. And I started um, doing that. And I got my first cease and desist letter from Philip Morris, which is about 340 pages. Okay. I still have it to this day. I'll never throw it away. Yeah. I was about to say that's, yeah. that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and so they, cause on my website, I said, Marlboro flavor, camel flavor. Uh, and so they said, you can't use yeah, our you names. You can't do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes sense. I was actually doing it to see who would pay attention. Oh, they, hello. <laughs> yeah, they paid attention. Now, my web sales were not astronomical, right? But it showed me how sensitive they were. Mm. Here's a little website that's barely doing shit for sales, and we're going to go after them, right? And um, so I changed the names. No problem. I don't want to get sued and pulverized. Yeah. Right? So I changed the names, and um, there was, uh, it was the Wild West. Right. There was no laws about e-cigarettes. And I would I would uh, order them from a manufacturer in China, specifically in Shenzhen, China. That's where every e-cigarette on the planet is made, by the way, guys. Um, and I would order them in and customs would often steal my shipment. Why? Um, so there was no law about it. Right. Uh -huh. And so they were trying to trap us by the lithium battery law. Oh, my God. Right. And so they were saying this doesn't have the proper certification or whatever, right? And they probably weren't that wrong because we did have some battery explosions. I think some people remember seeing those yeah, in the news. I remember right? seeing that too, yeah. yeah. So they probably weren't that wrong. Yeah. Now, the manufacturer I had, we, I knew we were using top-of-the-line lithium batteries. I was making my own products, so I wasn't just ordering from some random factory. Um, so they would hold on to those shipments, and then they would hit me up four months later and ask for, like, astronomical amount of money. They'd be like, okay, if you want to get it out of customs, it's 85000 <laughs> And I was like, I only spent 14000 on the whole ship. <laughs> like, yeah. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. So I'll take the loss and a write-off at the end of the year. Thanks a lot. You know, but some would get through. And the way we used to get them through is we used to mislabel the packages. So the Chinese person I was dealing with would mislabel it, you know, and say air freshener or something like that on right, it. And right, then I'd right. get it, right? And so that was the early days of doing this. Um, I went to China, and I spent a couple weeks there. Really interesting time. Um, and when I came back, I had, I had placed a big order. Well, 
at that time um, was about when the big conversation started happening about kids using e-cigarettes and this being an epidemic. All right. The word epidemic before fentanyl was ever in the sure. picture was about e-cigarettes and that they're kids. Well, my argument was when I was uh, 16, 17 years old, I was stealing cigarettes from the Rite Aid. All right. And a lot of people I knew smoked at young ages. Fuck yeah. And cigarettes didn't taste good, but we wanted to smoke it for different reasons. Right. Whether it was to fit in with the older kids or whatever. Yeah. And or our parents smoked or whatever it was. Yeah. And um, so I just didn't I didn't stand on that argument. Right. That they they were like, oh, kids are getting a hold of them. So it's because of the flavors. Well, so they they that was the start of it all. And that entered me into the political debate that was e-cigarettes and vapes. OK. And I started at a very early time when the landscape was still being drawn out. Yeah. And so I had to go to like city council meetings that were televised and speak at the podium. Um, I had to write letters to lobbyists. But most importantly, I had to understand who was who was fighting us. Because if if you put out a, a commercial that says don't don't use vapes, which they have those commercials that have been out. Yeah. Who's funding those? Because commercials on network television are extremely expensive. And to run them 80 times a day, that's a big budget. So who is funding it, right? And I know the general public thought, oh, it's big tobacco. They don't want this out. Well, they were wrong because big tobacco bought heavy into vapes and e-cigarettes. Mm. They bought heavy to the tunes of multiples of millions, tens of millions of dollars. And so I was trying to figure it out. And then I finally got to it. And it was big pharma the whole time. And I was like, well, why would Big Pharma not want this out, right? And and I'm going to kind of pull the wool back for some of you guys, but this is documented. You can research it. I've, I've been there and seen it. Big Pharma had a technology that would vaporize medication for cancer patients, and they hadn't brought it to market yet, and e-cigarettes came out. And they felt that that vaporizing technology that was being used to vaporize the nicotine solution and also the vitamin solution that was coming out was going to impede on their sales of their product. And so they did everything they could to smash it. And it's real simple. They looked at how much it was going to cost to decimate the vape industry versus how much projected sales revenue they were going to have. And they made an educated decision that, yes, we can afford to spend this much to decimate that industry. At that time, the e-cigarette industry worldwide was only worth about I think close to $3 million. It ain't shit. It ain't nothing. And it survived because the general public wanted it to survive. The buyers wanted it to survive, right? And there's been a lot of fallacies and a lot of falsehoods since then. Another little tidbit is that right before COVID happened, I don't know who remembers this, but on the news, they were talking about vapes killing people, which we now know became vitamin E acetate in the marijuana cartridges that was killing people. But they the news did a lot of damage to the vape industry because they said, oh, this is e-cigarettes that is doing this. And kids are dying now. Well, if you want to get people motivated, tell them their kids are going to die, right? So this fear-mongering that went on, and it really hurt the vape industry as a whole for, for quite a while. And then COVID came on the back of that, right? Um, also, I think there were early cases of COVID before it was called COVID that was contributing to the lung illness that they were 
assigning to vapes also, but that's just a suspicion I have. But the I news, would say that it's pretty accurate, though. The news organization, the media, they were really pursuing the decimation of the vape industry. All right. And that was all on the back of the lobbying and financial power of Big Pharma. Isn't that fucking insane? Well, Big Pharma controls the world. 100%. So Trillions of dollars. Yeah. They, they control the drugs. They control everything. They control the candy. Hate to tell you guys, but they control the sugar. That's all Big Pharma. Yeah. All right. And um, being in an industry and going through what I went through in it and having to fight for my life, which was my company, right? Having mm-hmm. to fight for that all the time. Yeah. Having to go through all the different FDA clearances and everything that they threw at us, spending tens of thousands of dollars to meet their requirements. At a certain point, I lost my taste because once I saw the truth of what was going on, I lost all faith for a minute. I said, okay, this world's fucked. I said, this is so not freedom at all. Yeah. This is so, we're, we're all, we're all uh, like test animals. <laughs> First of all, you know, we're all lab rats to some degree. Yeah. And, um, and so once, once that happened, I just, I turned off politics at that point. And so touching on what you were yeah. saying, you know, I just, that's why I don't watch the news. I don't, I don't, I don't want to be another viewer for the ratings. I'm just, nope, I'm good. I don't trust them. I don't think they tell us the truth. And if I want to know what's going on, then I'll go outside my front door and look around <laughs> and, oh, there's nothing happening here. Yeah. All right, cool. Yeah. You know? Yeah, no, I mean, that's a fantastic story. And I totally agree. <clears throat> I think that they are trying to control us, which they already are. We can't even have flavored tobacco in California now. That's control. Right. How the fuck are you going to tell me that I, I am a 43-year-old man and I can't have a flavor? But meanwhile, I can go drink as much liquor as possible? Like, that doesn't make any fuck. It's absurd to me. Well, I'll say something that'll rile a lot of people up. How yeah. about you can go and buy marijuana now? Yeah. Right? I mean, not, and I'm not going to take a stance. Marijuana is what it is, right? Yeah. And it's medicine to some people. And But I'm going to tell you this. There's lots of medicine out there that doesn't get you high or alter your state of mind or your mood. And I'm a big believer in that type of medicine. Because anything that you have to take that's medicinal, that changes your mindset or your ability to react to things uh, or changes the way you think or damages brain cells, I just, I think there's a better way. Yeah. You know, I just think there's a better way. I do too. I think that, well, you and I will do another show that's maybe two hours long the next time and we'll just put on our fucking tinfoil hats and get going (laughs) because I'm going to tell you right now, I can tell that you're into it. (laughs) You know what I mean? You call conspiracy theory or you're not. Some of that shit is fucking facts, motherfuckers. Yeah. Don't get it fucked up. But, you know, before we go out, let's go ahead and um, let's go ahead and plug your uh, reconstruction rescue one more time. Give them the phone number. I was going to pull up the phone. Let me do that. Yeah, most, I'll say this. A lot of people don't know when they need a flood restoration company. Right. And I'm going to take the opportunity to explain to you when you when you really need one. First, let me tell you this: your 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 homeowner's insurance, the person that sells you sells you your insurance, that's your friend. All right, they can be your relative, they can be whoever. That's we got no issue with that person. But please understand that once it goes to the claims department, you're dealing with a different animal. It's a different part of the building, and they're cutthroat, they're ruthless, and all they want to do is save money, and they don't have your well-being at at, at mind. I say this after doing north of 600 jobs where I've dealt with insurance companies that want to rip off a 92-year-old woman, that want to rip off uh, a mother of four kids. 
they 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 don't see the human there. Mm-hmm. They see the number, your claim number at that point. You need a flood restoration expert who uses the same software they do so that it's apples to apples. They can put it in their system. They can read it. They can understand it. And you need that expert who knows how to negotiate and argue and justify the expense so you can get paid and you can be in control of the work happening at your house by managing those payments to your contractor. It's really important. The days of trusting the insurance company to just handle everything are gone. That's 20, 30 years ago. Some of you have been through these claims before and know what I'm talking about, but others who luckily have never experienced it, if it ever happens, please heed my advice. Find an expert who's going to come work for you, sign a contract with you, and do business with you to represent you to the insurance company. And don't get scared when they ask you to sign their paperwork to choose them. That's standard in our industry. I know a lot of clients get real nervous about signing something with a cancellation fee. I just want to tell you, it's necessary because the amount of work we're going to do for free before we ever contract with you is to the tune of tens of hours. And so we want to guarantee that if you cancel us after we do that free work, that there's some kind of reward to us for doing it. You know, it's not to trap you. Now, I can tell you there's some companies that are not reputable, and if you experience one of them, I apologize. But not all of us are like that. Um, also, uh, flood restoration is really good for, uh, you know, if you're experiencing an active flood in your home, uh, you can call a flood restoration company and they can get you a, a, a what's called a, a dry-out company that will come and dry you out. They can get you a plumber. So it's always good to call them and have one of them in your phone just so that you have that resource because you never know when a pipe's going to burst or it's going to rain like crazy, um, or God forbid you have a fire at your house, they're a great resource. So uh, Reconstruction Rescue is the name of my company, uh, www.reconstructionrescue.com. Uh, I'm sorry, reconstructionrescuesandiego.com. Uh, we cover all of San Diego County, parts of Orange County as well, Temecula, uh, parts of the IE, uh, Inland Empire, um, all the way down to the Tijuana border. And... Um, 760-891-9919 and yeah give us a call um, and let us know if if you need something there you have it guys you heard it right there right now listen man i appreciate you coming on this has been a fantastic show and i know that uh you know people are going to be engaged with this show too i mean I, i mean i just love this platform i love having conversations with friends and then they talk about their stories and you know, just to grow from it, you know, it's just fucking a beautiful thing. So I just appreciate you coming on, man. Well, I just want to tell you how much I love LFG 1904. I appreciate that, brother. Always support. You from always day do. One. You really have. So. You always fucking have. This song fucks, too. Yeah. Funky people gonna dance to. Give the record a second. I haven't heard this in a minute. You know the deal. You know the fucking deal, dog. This is going right on the playlist, huh, boy? <laughs> what are you gonna do? You listen to the knowledge of a scholar. You say hi, I breathe. Tell them how I holler. I'm the E-double. And I proclaim my name. Straight up, good gang. Peeps all game. I'm like a rhino. Running through the roughest pack. They figure I'm a trigger happy nigga, so they step back. Breathe. The microphone is boot lasts the longest. The news is strongest. It ain't a game as plain to see. You listen to the sounds of breathe. There ain't a future in your front.